Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. June 21st, 2021, coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered. A unanimous Supreme Court decides the NCAA must stop limiting compensation for student athletes. We'll talk about this with author and historian Taylor Branch. Remember, he wrote the book on the NAACP called it the cartel. Well, Lynn Manuel Miranda's film In the Heights has raised the issue of colorism in the Latino community. Bill Maher, he says, if you're complaining about it, shut up. I'm going to explain why Bill Maher, a white man, has no clue or understanding about the history of colorism in the Latinos and African-Americans. Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson, remember he was the one who opposed Juneteenth becoming a federal holiday? He showed his ass up at a Juneteenth celebration in Wisconsin. He was not well received, about as well received as raisins and potato salad. 
And in Georgia, the Emory School of Medicine formally apologized to a doctor 60 years after denying his application because he was black. And Democratic Senator Joe Manchin is getting backlash from Republican senators for his voting compromise. We'll show you what he was being said, and you'll hear from Senator Chuck Schumer, who plans on bringing the bill to the floor for a vote this week. And Democratic state lawmakers, they walked out before the vote uh, on, on uh, Barrett's voting uh, in Texas. Well, guess what? Texas Governor Greg Abbott, he's a little pissant. He vetoed the state budget that funded the legislature. Aww. And in San Bernardino, California, authorities investigate the video footage of a deputy kicking a man in his head during an arrest. Also, I'll dip into our archives and show you Essence Festival interviews with Slick Rick and Master P. Plus, for Black Music Month, we got a little something-something for you. It's time to bring the funk. I'm rolling Mark Down Filter. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. A big decision today by the NCAA and Supreme Court. Supreme Court, unanimous decision rules of the NCAA. They cannot limit compensation for student-athletes. They ruled the NCAA was violating antitrust laws by capping education-related gifts and benefits student-athletes can receive. The justices sided with a group of former college athletes who claimed the NCAA rules were unfair and violated federal laws designed to promote competition. Students can continue to receive educational benefits like computers, lab equipment, and internships from the schools they play, but the ruling does not decide whether they can be paid salaries. This, folks, is a huge, huge decision that folks have been warning for years at the NCAA, its executives, who are making millions of dollars, football coaches making five, six, seven, ten million dollars, endorsement deals, you name it. Everybody's making money except the athletes. Joining me right now is Taylor Branch, uh, who wrote an ebook called The Cartel, uh, dealing with the NCAA. We had him on uh, my uh, TV One show, Washington Watch, years ago when it came out. Uh, and, uh, and Taylor, anybody who uh, read your book, that ebook, anybody who follows this, look, this was coming where the NCAA was going to get their comeuppance in terms of how they have treated student-athletes for decades. Absolutely. This is a great step forward. Um, lots of people have been working on this for a long time. I did a history of it for the Atlantic Magazine, uh, in, as you refer, called The Shame of College Sports. Uh, and it was a big um, exploration for me to figure out how they did it. But it, remarkably, they had the whole brain country brainwashed to think that athletes should pay for nothing, play for nothing, uh, for the convenience of everybody else that was making money and for the viewers watching. And uh, the court has finally said today that rights come before anybody else's convenience and profits. 
And if you're going to compete, you've got to allow the, the athletes who provide the essential talent to have a share of the rewards. Uh, this was uh, the ebook uh, right here. Uh, and uh, first of all, I clicked the link, Taylor, and it said it wasn't available at, Bar at Amazon. So uh, let me know what's going on. Uh, I can tell you, the ebook company went bankrupt. That, that's a long time ago. The, the, the Atlantic article, The Shame of College Sports, you can call it up on Google anytime. Okay. Uh, which has 90% of it. The Atlantic Monthly uh, started this, and it was so long ago that it was there was an ebook experiment. <laughs> well, actually, if I was The Atlantic, uh, I would be trying to figure out um, how to republish that sucker, y'all, because it was called The Cartel. Inside the Rise and Imminent Fall of the NCAA. And folks, if you read that book, if you read what Taylor laid out, y'all heard me reference student athlete. Even that phrase, that was not a phrase that was conjured up in the best interest of students. Taylor, explain to people even where the phrase student athlete came from. It was contrived, admittedly, by the head of the NCAA, by their lawyers, to make it to make it sound like a, a, an athlete in college who was a hybrid between a student and an athlete, and then nobody could understand it but the NCAA, and so that if players were hurt and got brain damaged, um, they couldn't collect unemployment or, or workers' compensation because they were defined as student athletes which weren't quite employees. So it was, it was originally concocted to confuse people. And um, we don't hyphenate anybody else in college. We don't call them student cashiers or you know, most students have some sort of job. But the student athlete is the only one that they concocted that thing in order to help um, keep the schools from having any liability um, uh, for, the, for injuries to the players. So it was a legal strategy to come up with that name, student athlete, that phrase. A legal strategy, but once it worked, uh, anybody from college sports, including broadcasters, um, uses it like a mantra. They always talk about student-athletes, but we don't talk about any other student uh, that way. They, they're students in the classroom, and they're athletes or whatever else they want to do outside the classroom. But this was a way for the universities to reap the benefits of the athletic talent without any responsibility or obligation uh, to those same athletes. And it's been going on for a long time. As you say, the, the court's decision today only applies to academically related benefits, which uh, athletes can start getting. But it's a huge precedent. And um, the court, in, including surprisingly Justice Kavanaugh, almost invited athletes to file more suits going to the basic issues of compensation. Once the, once the student, the, these college athletes get some rights, it's hard to keep the rest of them from them. Uh, and, and in fact, to the point that uh, you just made, uh, I think uh, I, I want to show this, folks. Uh, let me zoom in, zoom in, the can, zoom in if I can. Uh, this is literally what Justice Kavanaugh wrote. Quote, the bottom line is that the NCAA and its member colleges are suppressing the pay of student athletes who collectively generate billions of dollars in revenues for colleges every year. Those enormous sums of money flow to seemingly everyone except the student-athletes. College presidents, athletic directors, coaches, conference commissioners, and NCAA executives take in six- and seven-figure salaries. Colleges build lavish new facilities. But the student-athlete 
student athletes who generate the revenues, many of whom are African-American and from lower income backgrounds, end up with little or nothing. See brief for African-American antitrust lawyers. Absolutely. Um, it sounds to me like he read what we wrote. <laughs> um, a bunch of historians, um, I was pleased and privileged to be on an amicus brief of historians saying this, this injustice has a long history in the United States. It took a long time to build up all the layers uh, so that a lot of people in the public were um, kind of brainwashed into thinking this was okay. Um, but this begins to move toward justice after a, a long time, and I'm, I'm, I can't be happier that, that the court uh, issued this decision today. I, I hope others uh, follow from it. And the thing that, again, uh, we've talked about a lot, like this has been building, the Ed O'Bannon lawsuit, when they went after uh, the video game makers for using the likenesses of athletes. The NCAA claimed that their names weren't on it, so therefore that wasn't them. But you're going, yeah, but you're using the number, you're using the, the physical build, all of that. We know exactly what's going on here. Uh, and, and, and Oscar Robertson complained about that. Here's Oscar Robertson, who hadn't been in college in 40, 50 years, and they were using his likeness from the University of Cincinnati, and he was like, what the hell? I ain't even been there in half, half a century. But, and that's what they would, they, they have been making all of this money, and they've been cr crying, oh, but if this happens, all the other sports, we're not gonna be able to fund them. No, it is now turned to big money. Now you have the Power Five conferences talking about expanding the playoffs from four of the 12 teams. Why? More TV money. Absolutely. By the way, I predicted that in the in the shame of college sports was uh, written in 2011 before the playoff started and they were already angling toward the four team playoff. And inevitably, it's going to grow because the revenue grows ex exponentially when you have a larger tournament. That's the lesson of, of March Madness in basketball, which basically finances the entire NCAA budget. You know, and, and the thing that, that, that really jumps out at me um, um, uh, with this, and you said it best, how they brainwash all of these people. And it, and it has been, even when I hear black folks saying crazy stuff, Taylor, well, you know, they're getting a free education. And you're like, you clearly don't know a damn thing about college sports. I worked in the athletic department at Texas A&M for two years in their video lab. I saw, now I mean, there was one brother who went to A&M on an architecture scholarship and they were angry, telling him he needed to stop focusing on architecture and focus on football. And he said, I'm not here for football. And now he was a player, but he, his whole deal was, look, I know what I'm here for. And that, and, and that happens all the time where essentially these are professional Athletes and guess and, and the Olympics track and field was the same way all these so-called amateur sports And then of course Prefontaine and others begin to sue them and now you have athletes who are still Amateur athletes, but they're not, they're not getting paid a lot of money who run track and field and stuff like that it, This this whole system was designed for another group to make all the money and participate and, and partaking in the free labor People will get away with it if they can you mentioned the Olympics and Steve Prefontaine, actually, ironically, Congress ended amateurism in, in Olympic sports because the Soviet Union was clearly paying its athletes and we were losing too many medals. So in the 70s, they basically said the athletes themselves have to be represented 
on each of the Olympic committees. And as soon as they did that, the, you know, the Olympics changed. But, but it didn't affect the popularity of the Olympics at all. But the fact that Michael Phelps uh, can make millions of dollars in endorsements, he's still competing in the Olympics, and so are Olympic athletes. And that same sort of model will probably work uh, sometime soon, I hope, um, for college athletes um, in, in uh, regular college sports. Uh, Congress itself showed that it can be done. That's how they fixed the Olympics. Well, and again, that was because they didn't like America losing. No, they didn't like that. <laughs> the, the, the Russians were doping and paying uh, their, their, their athletes a lot and, and basically turning them into, that's all they did. Uh, so the Soviet Union was winning too many gold medals in the Olympics. And so we wanted to be able to compete with that. So because, other, you know, Steve Prefontaine was on food stamps. The, the, the rules were so strict that they couldn't get money to train with. And uh, now, of course, they have sponsorships and they have first class training facilities and they can compete with athletes from Russia or any other country. But, but what does it say about our the American society, Taylor? Where and this just this goes beyond the NCAA. It's just like all of these people who are brainwashed to build billion-dollar stadiums for owners to make them richer, and then they get mad when a player decides to hold out. How dare you hold out? You're hurting our team, and that owner got no problem jacking up concession prices, ticket prices, all of that. I mean, it is mind-boggling to me when I keep seeing this happen. Where and I go, you do know that when when you when you taxpayers finance that new stadium, you're paying the bonds. So oh oh, I, oh the owner oh I'll chip in 150 million for the one billion. Hell, if you could build me a billion dollar stadium, I gotta chip in a, a just 10 percent. Sure, why not? People people will get away with whatever they can get a, get away with, and if they can distract you. Uh, with a shiny object and an exciting play on TV um, and take all the money, then uh, if you're not careful, they can convince you uh, to be blind uh, to, to elementary fairness. And so this is not new, but the good thing about America is as long as there are courts and as long as people can fight and march and write and think, um, we'll, we'll be able to have a chance at least to correct some of these things. But this has gotten really, really bad when when you've gotten a gigantic industry um, with coaches multiplying. You've got million-dollar assistant coaches, million-dollar-a-year assistant coaches proliferating because they've got so much money, they slather it all over the athletic department um, and don't have to give the uh, athletes any salary at all. But, you know, that will, that will change as, as reform comes into this system. And I think, frankly, Taylor, uh, last point here, I think with this 9-0 decision, NCAA... Get ready for an onslaught of lawsuits in other areas. You I mean again? Uh, the you know you, you laid it out. The rise and imminent fall of the NCAA, y'all. This is the article right here that was in the Atlantic, uh, and all you do is just type in Taylor Branch NCAA in the Atlantic, uh, and it's called "The Shame of College Sports." A leading civil rights historian makes the case for paying college athletes and reveals how a spate of lawsuits working their way through the courts could destroy the NCAA. Y'all, that was written October. It was in the October 2011 issue of the Atlantic. Here we are, almost 10 years later, uh, and it's coming to pass. They're going to go down real fast. 
they're going to have to pass a lot of new rules to, to, to avoid this whole thing crumbling. Well, Roland, uh, I agree, but be aware of one thing. That's a lot of money to hang on to, and they're going to hang on to it as long as they can. They'll come up with every scare tactic they can think of. They're going to say you're not going to have um, swimming and that it's going to hurt every other sport and so on and so forth. So they will cry wolf like crazy. Um, but the fundamentals are on the, on the side of the athletes who produce the talent. Uh, when you watch a sporting event on television, they don't point the cameras at the coaches or, or the conference officials who are collecting the money. They, they point it at the athletes, and it's only fair that they should have a, a share of the benefits that they earn. Absolutely. All right, then, Taylor Branch, we surely appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Roland. Let's go to my, uh, let's go to, of course, my panel here, Dr. Julianne Malvo, President Economist, uh, also President Emera at Bennett College. Hey, y'all got to put Julianne's new title, y'all, okay? We got to ditch the Bennett College one. She got a new title. Uh, Omakongo uh, Dabinga, Professorial Lecturer of School of International Service, American University. Michael Brown, former Vice Chair, DNC Finance Committee. Julianne, I'll start with you. You college be the president emerita bennett but i am the incoming dean of cal state university that's my point i'm like i said you got a new title <laughs> so you get a new title use a new not the old one um look you were president uh, 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 of a college uh and look here's the here's the deal here ncaa been making like a fat rat they have been i mean these folks the president of the ncaa makes more than not when than when he was a president of a college I have horrible sound, guys. Um, All right, y'all fix Julian's sound. Uh, I'm going to go to uh, Omicongo. Uh, let me know what Julian's sound is straight. Omicongo, uh, this is a huge decision, and for it to be 9-0, that shows you uh, how significant this decision is. <laughs> I was shocked. I mean, first of all, 9-0, and I never thought in my life I would be agreeing with Kavanaugh on anything. But this is important, it's necessary, and it has to be done. What they are doing with college athletes is exploitation. I, I was an undergrad at Georgetown University, saw it up close and personal. And, and really, at the end of the day, we have to make sure that these athletes are, are getting their just due. I remember, remember the days of the Fab Five with Chris Webber, and he was talking about seeing his names on these jerseys, but he couldn't even afford to get a pizza. And this, and this is ridiculous. And so I'm so happy with this decision. And I think on the flip side, one of the things that we have to start doing with our athletes who are coming from our communities is we're going to have to start making sure that if if they're some type of top prospect, they may need to go into college with a, with a financial planner. But they're going to need some form of advocate who's going to know their rights as it relates to the educational benefits that may financial benefits that are going to come later down the line because I don't want these students who now are going to have these abilities to advocate for themselves to come in and get screwed because of what they didn't know on the other side. You know, Michael, I mean, the thing that jumps out here, the thing that just, first of all, y'all fix Julian sound? Okay, y'all got to let me know. Uh, Michael, the thing that jumps out here uh, is, again, they have been making billions of dollars. Billions. There are coaches who are sitting on 30 and 40 and 50 million dollars. Coaches who are signing uh, multi-year seven-figure endorsement deals. Uh, and then in the NCAA would, would suspend the player. I remember when um, 
uh, prior. He was a quarterback for Ohio State, got suspended uh, for, for autographing his own damn jersey. Same his own jersey. Uh, they they tried mm. to go to Johnny Manziel. I mean, we can go on and on and on. Oh, receiving benefits. Uh, you, you received a car, but uh, the university had no problem giving country clubs memberships and paying off the mortgages of coaches and things along those lines. I mean, it, it, it's shameful this what's, what's been happening. And thank God athletes like Ed O'Bannon and others sued the NCAA and said enough is enough. The pimping has to end. Absolutely. And, uh, and I agree uh, that, you know, it's interesting that the Supreme Court ruled the way they ruled. It's great that it was a 9-0 decision. It's great that even some on the far right uh, were able to see the exploitation of the black athlete in college athletics. Uh, and, uh, Justice Kavanaugh wrote, uh, I don't think we'll agree with him on other decisions, but on this one, we can certainly uh, agree with him. But I think the concern also is, you know, the great organizations are able to look into the future or whatever that old business term is, look around corners. Uh, and the NCAA has had opportunity after opportunity to fix this problem. And whenever you fix the problem, first, on your own, proactively, you're less likely for it to be legislated against you or for there to be a court ruling against you. And they have refused. They could have, they could have had revenue sharing. They could have had profit sharing. They could have had a variety of different economic uh, ways to, to compensate athletes at the same time, still make zillions of dollars. But because of greed, they wanted it all. And now, because they didn't do it proactively on their own, they're going to be forced to do it, and that's always worse. The thing, the thing here, folks, uh, that and, and the people who are watching, it has been amazing, as Taylor talked about, Omicongo. The folks who've gotten sucked into this whole deal of the hell with them, uh, you know, you know, they're getting a free education. And, and, and we're just so illogical the whole time. And I'm telling you, it ticked me off when I hear black people say that kind of stuff, having no clue of understanding, no clue that this so-called scholarship wasn't a scholarship. That really, it, it was actually, yep. it, it, it wasn't. It was a grant and aid. They could snatch it when they wanted to. And people had just no idea. They, they believed this fallacy that, oh, the university was doing just this great thing for the good of the student. That's right. And I, that's one of the things I, I love about this, because over at least LeBron James and so, and so many other people, they've been advocating for themselves. And we see it at many these universities, you get injured or they decide I want you in more, you are completely out on the street. And so many of us, we have to start understanding our value instead of too many times we've had this just be happy to be here type mentality. These athletes are building these universities. I did not realize as assistant coaches who were making millions of dollars. That, that blew my mind. And then when he talked to a student athlete, these guys are being exploited. And so even in our own communities, we can't just be happy enough to say that, oh, they're going to Duke, they're going to this place, they're going to that place, get your education and you'll be fine. No, because that's not how the industry works. I mean, it's it's a system that is designed on exploiting people. It is exploiting our talents. And it's a system designed on building long-term wealth for everybody else but us. And I am so happy that these players are wising up. And, and you, like you said, you talked about Ed O'Bannon and others, and it's been a continual process. We're not done. There's a lot more work to go. 
But we have to get out of this mentality of just be happy to be there. You have a chance of doing something great. Get out the community. No, let's talk about not being exploited in the ways that we wouldn't tolerate for any other group or any other group of people like coaches and assistant coaches and the like. If they're going to get that paper and these other benefits, we need to be getting that too at the student athlete level. At the athlete level, I should say. Now the word student athlete is just messing with me now, even using it now that I've been educated on that term a little bit more. Let's go to, uh, I think we fixed Julian's uh, audio issues. Uh, Julian, you there? Go ahead. Uh, Julian, you can weigh in on the Supreme Court decision. I enjoyed the decision. I think it was really important. You know, I'm thinking back to, um, I sat on this President's Athletics Commission when I was President Bennett uh, that one of those groups had. And, you know, obviously, Bennett's a little bitty school without, you know, we had a basketball team and a track team. That was it. So we were, I guess I was there like their affirmative action person or whatever. But, you know, the conversations that people had about what coaches were earning, how presidents were being compensated for the success of their teams, and how young brothers and sisters, but mostly brothers, were being placed in jeopardy because a booster gave them a plane ticket home. Well, they should have been able to afford the plane ticket home. They should not have needed the booster to give them a plane ticket home. But the issue, quite frankly, is, as Michael said earlier, exploitation. The fact is that, you know, basically this is the height of capitalist exploitation, taking surplus value, offering a scholarship. The worst part about it, Roland, is that when some of these young people are injured or something like that, scholarship goes away. So they thought they had a four-year deal, and then they have a knee injury. That's the end of that. So we really need to... I'm glad the court did this. I'm quite pleased with the court decision. And I think there's a lot more that has to be done in the area of athletics. And I don't like the term student-athlete either, uh, Omokongo. I mean, come on now. They, like someone said, I think uh, Taylor Brand said, you don't have student cashiers. You don't have uh, student maintenance workers. They get paid for being maintenance workers. They get paid. They get scholarships for being students. So why can't we treat athletes the same way and with the same dignity? Because they trot these brothers out, and I'm saying brothers because there's not that many sisters. They trot these brothers out to show up here, to show up there, and then they don't even want them to have the benefit of the profits from their jerseys. And there you go. All right, folks, y'all going to love this one. So, of course, Juneteenth, national holiday. Celebrated that on Saturday. Guess who tried to roll up to a Juneteenth event in Wisconsin? Senator Ron Johnson, the Republican, who blocked it last year and who still said this year he was against it because there simply are just too many federal holidays. He got a wonderful greeting when he did. Congo, Ron Johnson shows up 
to an event in Milwaukee. They booed him until he left. This was his quote. It still seems strange that having taxpayers provide federal employees paid time off is now required to celebrate the end of slavery. Well, guess what? Those folks said, we ain't got to listen to your ass talk. I loved it. Man, I was listening to some of the background comments of one woman in particular. And look, the, the beautiful thing about this and, and all of these shenanigans that the Republicans are, are pulling is that it actually makes me optimistic. All right, all right. So we have an issue on the Congo. We have an issue with your um, your connection. Uh, we have a hold of sight. We're going we're gonna to fix the problem with your connection. Michael, go ahead. It's, you know, it shows... Rolling that, um, and as a former uh, elected official, it just shows that politicians have no shame. He knows exactly what he did. <laughs> he knows exactly what he said. He knows exactly where he stands on a variety of issues, not just the Juneteenth issue. And to show up at an event, because he, he's obviously thinking, oh, I'm not going to get booed. I'm going to get applauded for showing up. You know, because he's, of course, not thinking his staff didn't say, well, you know, maybe... You may get booed. You may get a couple boos here and there. So, oh, no way, because I'm showing up. I'm showing I'm the bigger person. And that was his mentality, and he deserved to get what he got. And it's a shame that he put up the, uh, you know, I, I imagine he has never said anything about any other holiday, in particular, whether it's Christopher Columbus, uh, Columbus Day. I'm sure he hasn't said, oh, federal workers shouldn't get Columbus Day off. You better believe he hasn't said that. So, uh, you know, Ron Johnson, is, is, he is who he is. And uh, I'm glad he got booed. On Congo, you uh, there now? <laughs> yeah. Uh, 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 you know, again, I think that it, it's really, it, it can be very good for us that the Republicans are pulling on all of these shenanigans if they're not successful, because really what it's doing is it's keeping us engaged is keeping us involved in the elections. And so when Ron Johnson and these others show up, it's sort of like when they come into the black churches during the election season. We got to let them know that they're not welcome, that they can't on their posters in the black community. People are tired, they're upset, and they know that these guys are going to stop at nothing to disenfranchise us. So Ron Johnson got exactly what he deserved. And I hope that this happens across the country because people need to know that you're not just going to come out and, and just show up for these pictures and these photo ops and then come back in and disrespect our culture and history. We're not standing for it anymore. Uh, Julian? Julian? You know, like I said earlier, look at the racial composition of the crowd. People are tired of this nonsense. People are tired of this man. People are tired of the spit that he talks. I did say spit. That he talks on the floor of the Senate. And he really, um, he's going to get a backlash. Now, whether it's enough to get him out of office in Wisconsin, I don't know. But what I do know is that we need to look at the 100 senators who voted for Juneteenth. If they really believe in Juneteenth, they need to vote for voting rights. They need to vote for voting rights. They need to vote for the George Floyd bill. So while I'm thrilled, well, I'm not quite thrilled. I'm not jumping for Juneteenth, but I'm happy that we have it. But I wish that these folks could take their unanimous vote and do something with it that was substantive. Well, uh, I'm good with it. And I say every time Ron Johnson talks, boo his ass. All right, y'all. Uh, now, let's, uh, let's talk about this, uh, this issue uh, with the movie In the Heights. 
uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, of course, uh, of course, a force behind Hamilton, uh, came out with this movie, and a lot of conversation, a lot of conversation. Latinos excited. I mean, it was about you know, New York, and it was about the music and the culture. But then when the movie came out, there were issues. There were issues with the movie uh, because... Where were the Afro-Latinos? Where did they go? Uh, why weren't they exhibited? Why were they only sort of extras in the movie? And so Lynn had to apologize for this. He, he actually released a statement. Y'all pull the statement up if you have it, please. Uh, this is the statement that he released. I started writing In the Heights because I didn't feel seen. And over the past 20 years, all I wanted was for us, all of us, to feel Seen. I'm seeing a discussion around Afro-Latino representation in our film this weekend. And it is clear that many in our dark-skinned Afro-Latino community don't feel sufficiently represented within it, particularly among the leading roles. I can hear the hurt and frustration over colorism of feeling still unseen in the feedback. I hear that without sufficient dark-skinned Afro-Latino representation, the work feels extractive of a community we wanted so much to represent with pride and joy. In trying to paint a mosaic of this community, we fell short. I'm truly sorry. I'm learning from the feedback. I thank you for raising it, and I'm listening. I'm trying to hold space for both the incredible pride in the movie we made and be accountable for our shortcomings. Thanks for your honest feedback. I promise to do better in my future projects, and I'm dedicated to the learning and evolving we all have to do to make sure we are honoring our diverse and vibrant community. Siempre LMM. Now, uh, you might remember Rita Marino. She went on, I believe it was Stephen Colbert's show, and she had some thoughts about that. And, and this is what Rita Marino said. For a second about that criticism about Lin-Manuel, that really upsets me. Oh yeah, for the, people who, don't, for the people who don't know, your, your friend and ours, Lin-Manuel Miranda, has been in the also, news. He also co-produced my, my uh, documentary. documentary, yeah. Um, he, there's been some criticism for the lack of uh, Afro-Latino people in, in The Heights, uh, yeah. the, the, the movie adaptation of his, of his play. I mean, it's like what you do, can what never, do you make of that? You can never do right, it seems. This is the man who literally has brought Latinoness and Puerto Ricanness to America. I couldn't do it. I mean, I, I would love to say I did, but I couldn't. Lin-Manuel has done that really single-handedly, and I'm thrilled to pieces, and I'm proud that he produced uh, my documentary. And so are you saying that while you may understand where people's uh, concerns come from, that perhaps it's misplaced in criticizing him in this? Well, I'm simply saying, can't you just wait a while and leave it alone? There's a lot of people who are Puerto Ricanio, who are also from uh, Guatemala, who are dark and who are also fair. We are all colors in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is how it is. And I just, it would be so nice if they hadn't come up with that and left it alone just for now. I mean, they're, they're, really, they're really attacking the wrong person. Now, after that, uh, Rita Marino got a whole lot of criticism. Uh, and uh, Rita had to come out and say that, you know what, uh, yeah, I kind of messed up. Um, I, 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 I kind of messed up. She 
she admitted that uh, she was disappointed uh, in herself for um, those comments. Friday, real time with Bill Maher. The conversation came up. And leave it to Mr. I'm white, but I can opine on anything. Bill Maher, this is what he had to say. Reading also about Lin-Manuel Miranda this week, he of Hamilton fame and, you know, won a Pulitzer Prize for it. He's got a new musical, The Heights, which is about Washington Heights. I know that neighborhood. My father parked in it every day of his life, going to New York, coming over from New Jersey, and then taking the subway down to Midtown. And um, he wrote the music and lyrics. He's, his parents are Puerto Rican, came to this country from Puerto Rico. Um, the book is by someone who's half Puerto Rican. It got 96% Rotten Tomatoes. People loved it. Great reviews, for which he has apologized profusely. Why? Well, there's Latinx performers, one black lead, but no Afro-Latinx. The committee that makes note of everyone's skin tone discovered this, and then Lin-Manuel Miranda had to say, I'm truly sorry, I'm learning from the feedback, I thank you for raising it, and I'm listening. I promise to do better in my future projects. This is what I was talking about with Nikki. Please, stop the apologizing. You're the guy who made the Founding Fathers black and Hispanic. I don't think you have to apologize to Twitter. For fuck's sake. This is why people hate Democrats. It's cringy. Well, they, they can't seem to distinguish between an oversight and an outrage. Okay? And, and, and let me help them. If, as, a, as a white boy, I had to look this up because it's not my lived experience. But if you're a, a black woman giving birth, you're four times more likely to die in childbirth than a white woman. If you're a black kid, you're two and a half times more likely to be shot by a cop than a white kid. Uh, if you happen to survive all that, you make less money, you have less wealth, oh, and you die sooner. Those are outrages, and liberals ought to be focused on that, not right. the casting choices of, uh, I think, a heroic guy who's making a film about a minority community. Right. I mean... Here are two white men on a national television show telling people of color what the hell we should be focused on. Allow me to unpack the bullshit Paul Bagalia just said. I'm going to deal with Bill, too. But the bullshit from Bagalia, the things that he cited, are issues we've covered. But what Paul does not understand, what Bill Maher does not understand, is that Black people and Afro-Latinos have had to deal with whiteness deciding what's palatable. We can go through history when you, when you were a light-skinned black actress. Hollywood, Hollywood said, we'll accept Lena Horne. We'll accept Dorothy Dandridge. But, oh, no, no, we are not going to accept a dark-skinned black woman. 
the idea of colorism is real. Because within the Latino Latina community, within the black community, not just in the United States, but all across the globe, white supremacy has caused even us and those of us in our communities to go through the light skin, dark skin thing because white has been defined as right. That's why you had black folks in America who passed. Because they said, I will have a better existence in this society if I'm white. Jane Elliott has challenged white America saying, if you could play traces, if you could trade places with somebody black, even if they're successful, would you? Hell no, the hands. Chris Rock, he said, no white man would trade places with me and I'm rich. So for Paul Begaglia and Bill Maher to be so dismissive of the concerns also shows how they have no understanding of how deep this thing is. It has an economic impact. It has an impact on how you see yourself. See, it's real easy for two white men like Paul Begaglia and Bill Maher to sit on television and say that because they've never been erased. They don't know what erasure is like. Black folks have had to deal with erasure in everything. The movie came out about Stonewall. All gay folks were excited. How you erase the black people who actually made Stonewall real? Stonewall was led by black gay people. But Hollywood was like, no, y'all don't even exist. We can go down the line. How Hollywood consistently has to frame things through the white prism. Not the black star, but the white stars. George Lucas experienced this when he made Red Tails. Went to every major Hollywood studio. They said, hey, what, 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 where are the white heroes? He said, the white people, white people are the villains. The heroes are the black people. No, no, we, we, need some, we, need some, we need some white heroes. What Bill Maher and Paul Begaglia don't get is that in American society, dark skin has always been seen like a savage. Ooh, you got nice hair. Ooh. When black and white people get together, they make pretty babies. We could we go down the line. A few years ago, Afro-Latinos were criticizing Telemundo and criticizing Univision, saying, why am I seeing white Hispanics? Why, am I, why, why are we not seeing darker-hued folks on those networks, in the novellas, on the news? Colorism. Go to Haiti, colorism. Go to Jamaica, other places in the Caribbean, colorism. Go to Africa, where the bleaching creams 
sales have exploded. Why? Because in this world, white men and white women have said that whiteness reigns supreme. And so for Bill Maher and Paul Bagayan, they had the conversation. How about this, Bill? Why, if you wanted to discuss that, why didn't you book a Latino to be on the show? Yeah, I know you had the, the light-skinned sister, and I've seen that for a reason, with the New York Times. But maybe if you had an Afro-Latino on the show, and in fact, Bill, I'll ask this, how many Afro-Latino commentators have you had on your show? And I know as an African-American, y'all only had me one time, October 2014, and y'all can't return our phone calls, so it's been seven years. But, but I, I want to know, where are they? See, if y'all really want to go there, let's talk about CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, ABC, NBC, CBS. First, how many Latino commentators do you see on network news? And if you see them, what do they look like? Do you see Afro-Latinos? America's never understood. America thought Roberto Clemente, oh, he black. He's like, no, I'm not. Gina Torres, oh, she black. She's like, no, this is who I am. And so here you got two white men in all of their whiteness, in all of their white maleness, in all of their superiority, and in their paternalistic tone, sitting there, saying, how, how dare y'all? How dare y'all get outraged? What's wrong with you? Here are the other more important issues that y'all should be concerned about. How, how dare y'all get concerned about those things? Well, Paul, you, you're a big-time Democrat. Should I get outraged for the lack of dollars flowing to black-owned media? from Democrat-run PACs like the ones you work with? Should Latinos be concerned with the lack of dollars flowing to them? Or are you going to tell me I should only be concerned about black women in childbirth? No, Paul, I want to be concerned about both. What we're dealing with here, y'all, is the history of America that has erased black people, that has erased Latinos, and then when you go inside of the black community, how colorism and the paper bag test and all of those things have greatly impacted our communities. So Paul and Bill, how dare the two of you be so damn arrogant in your whiteness that you want to have the audacity to tell us what in the hell we should be concerned about because maybe Afro-Latinos want to see themselves on the big screen, too. Maybe they want their culture, and they, maybe they want their children to see somebody who looks like them. But y'all wouldn't understand that, because, hell, y'all have been looking at white men in power for your whole damn lives. Joining us right now is the director uh, for student success with the Lumina Foundation uh, is Dr. Jasmine Haywood and also community organizer Rosa Clemente. Glad to have both of you on the show. Um, obviously, y'all can tell I was a little pissed off after I saw that bullshit on Friday. And Rosa, you one of the first folks, folks I text and you actually said, you know what, I'm writing about this tomorrow. 
Yeah, you know, Roland, I don't really care about neoliberal racists and then also a misogynist, sexist, and Muslim, um, anti-Muslim Bill Maher. I think our greater concern, especially as, as Puerto Ricans, is first and foremost, if you're making a movie in Washington Heights, it should be a movie about the Dominican community in Washington Heights. This movie casts no Dominican actors. Um, it casts light-skinned Puerto Ricans. But my beef is way bigger than the representation because I'm at a point in my life where I, if we're going to be represented, we have to make the stories ourselves, just like you have um, been a guide for the last 25 years for so many of us that do, quote-unquote, independent journalism, but journalism that cares about our communities. Our biggest concern, my biggest concern, is that Lin-Manuel Miranda and his father have been anti-Black since before Lin was born and throughout his um, um, success with Hamilton. We can all agree that Hamilton in this day and era would never be made. You would never make a show now about an, a white man and another white man that enslaved Africans and, and the way that Lin turned that into a success. But second, the biggest concern, especially from the Puerto Rican community, is that Lin-Manuel supported, gave testimony, and was there when President Barack Obama signed PROMESA. PROMESA set now an oversight board that handles all of our island finances, all mostly white men and women who work on Wall Street and decide each month how much money Puerto Rico, the government, can spend on, on the social good and municipal welfare. So for me, Lin-Manuel has been anti-Black when he supported PROMESA. He was anti-Black when he went to Puerto Rico against the wishes of Puerto Rican organizers and students and brought Hamilton down there where people paid $10,000 a head to be there. The average yearly economy of a Puerto Rican with four people in a family is $37,000. And lastly, his anti-blackness and what his father has done in New York City is a story that a lot of people don't know. People need to investigate who his father is. And if you talk to any elder activists or organizers from the 60s and the 90s, they considered his father a poverty pimp. And I would consider him that as well. But lastly, who in Puerto Rico did they think PROMESA was going to affect the most? The white elite who live in gated communities in a hill or the predominantly Afro and indigenous Boricuas and Puerto Ricanos that reside in, in Ponce, in Cabarrojo, in Bayamón, in La Pela, in Loisa, which has the highest descendant of African descendants in our community. So for me, it's bigger than that, because I know we can make good stories. I spent the last three years making a really dope movie with incredible filmmakers, all brothers and sisters, called Judas and the Black Messiah. And that was not a biography. And, it's, and it, we should have more movies on that. But Lynn now has to atone and he has to restore for the continual harm. I don't care about his prayers. I don't care about his thoughts. And honestly, Roland, I think this is going to end up happening. Lynn is going to go the white way in Hollywood. He'll now direct movies with white people in it. He'll be in cartoons and all of that because he has no space 
and his father has no space in our community. I actually, and this will probably be controversial, I think they're traitors to their Puerto Rican self, our elders and our ancestors. Dr. Jasmine Haywood, the, the thing that what really, again, tr troubles me uh, about this are the people who have two white guys who ain't got no clue about the reality of how deeply embedded colorism is. And for them, it's like, oh, be happy. Y'all, it's some Latinos. Well, I remember when black women criticized how Spike Lee was uh, writing black female roles. Just because... And again, I know Spike is a friend, but he took the hit. Tyler Perry gets criticized. We've seen folks say the exact same thing. We, we don't see this person, that person. Uh, I mean, we talk about in this country, America loves talking about Cubans. Very, very few Afro-Cubans. And again, what, what these two are projecting, but to, to say basically, how dare y'all even speak, speak uh, your piece just be quiet and go sit down and just enjoy the movie. That's pretty much what they were saying. Just shut up and watch the movie and be happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all a, a function of white supremacy. Um, colorism is a global phenomenon. It, it's not, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, it cuts through the black community, the Latino community, the Asian community, um, in fact, John Chu, who, who directed In the Heights, was had this same criticism when he directed Crazy Rich Asians uh, in terms of casting more lighter-skinned Asians in the main lead roles. Um, and so this is, this is a global issue. Colorism is a cousin of white supremacy. Um, and, you know... What it does, you know, what what they were talking about on the show was um, the perpetuation of a monolithic view of what it means to be Latino, what it what it means to look like a Latino, um, and all that does is serve white supremacy and and serve the gaze of of whiteness. Uh, the, the reason I brought up um, Stonewall. And either one of you can jump in here. Was because black gay people said the same thing. How in the hell y'all gonna do a movie about a movement that started and you erase the people who led the damn movement? That's that's outlandish. But again, Hollywood and its history has always been: how can we promote whiteness or folks who are lighter? Because let's be clear. There are white studio executives who are greenlighting films. And for them, what makes them more comfortable? That's what we're talking about here. And, and, and I think it's important to call folks out, like call Bill Maher out, call uh, Paul Bagaglia out for their comments because power determines what we see. American movies and television is actually America's greatest export. So when the world is looking at America, they're looking at movies. And if they're seeing a certain thing, all of a sudden it's like, oh, but that, that, that's America. And erasure is a real thing. It's real. And Rosa, we can't deny the realness of erasure. It exists. 
we we can't deny it, but this is what I'm saying, Roland. They're the two most insignificant people, especially to younger generation. No, 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 no. But here's here's why the, the, the issue is not significance in terms of younger people. This is why I'm saying this, because they are on a see this this is where the platform comes in. They are on a platform, HBO, national, international. You look at who you're talking to. You got nobody who can offer a counter to what you're saying. So when Bill and Paul speak, oh, you hear the audience clap. And what I am arguing, and this is really where we are, and the risk, this is probably what's pissing Bill off the most right now, is the same thing on this book I'm writing on white fear. We now get to have an opinion. We now get to express it. We now get to share it. And it's hard, because they're like, damn, here they go again. Yes, we're going to express our viewpoint. And it has to be called out because if you use your platform like that, then you should get checked, and you should get checked immediately. Yeah, but what I'm saying is a younger generation isn't tuned in to Bill Maher. Like, these, this is what I'm saying. The, the thing that's critical about this is addressing, as, as Sister earlier said, you know, colorism, yes. Inter-ethnic conflict. There's inter-ethnic conflict in every community. Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, Cubans, Venezuelan, Italian, Irish. Like, that happens. But that the larger picture is also that when we just talk about anti-blackness or white people particularly being anti-black, we're losing a conversation with younger people about how white supremacy is the reason that included in Hollywood this happens. Now, what, what, I, what I will say, too, and I, I hope people really hear me on this point, Steven Spielberg made a movie with Rita Moreno, they remade West Side Story, okay? 20th Century Fox. This is, for me, very critical. 20th Century Fox could spend $125 million to remake what is known in academic and all types of circles as one of the most racist movies and the most racist movie for depicting Puerto Ricans. There is a line in West Side Story where Rita Moreno says, so glad I left Puerto Rico, I hope it sinks into the ocean. Rita Moreno and Steven Spielberg have remade West Side Story. Who was in that room, as you said, who said in that room, this is a really good idea? Let's green light one of the most racist movies ever made that has already been remade that hundreds of times uh, on, on the Tony stage. That's why when Rita Moreno said what she said, so many of us were like, oh my God, she's an elder. But actually, that interview with Stephen Colbert is such a concrete example to show the anti-blackness in the passing white Latino, Latino, Latinx community. And lastly, I don't identify as Afro-Latinx or Black Latinx. I identify as a Black Puerto Rican woman. I use the language that is inclusive, but I've also been one for over 25 years to say, I'm not Afro anything. I'm an African descent, I'm a black Puerto Rican. Up until three years ago, it was very unpopular to say that. Now, unfortunately, what we're seeing is the same passing white Latino creators, influencers, and that are the ones all being asked to write about why in the heights was anti-black. Like, 
faculty people are being hired throughout the country for a growing Afro-Latinx, Latinx studies movement. And most of the people they've been hiring are Latinos who don't believe in Afro or Black Latinx. They believe in Latinidad, which is a methodology and a concept that actually asks you to erase your Blackness, erase your indigenousness. So the bigger picture is we as Afro, Black, Latino, Latinx folks, this is our time right now to get loud. And it means all hitting at all the levels. But ultimately, I have a goal right now, Roland. Honestly, I don't want West Side Story to come out. And I'm going to fight for that, and I'm going to build a collective of people. Not only should that remake should not come out, the same $125 million that was spent on that movie is the same amount of money that studio should give to Puerto Rican organizations on the island in Puerto Rico who are now on five days of no electricity once again. Our island has been colonized. Lynn and all these other forces are solidifying that colonization because ultimately their political goal is for statehood. And if anybody thinks Puerto Rico is going to be a state, you're living in the wrong time and the wrong century. Puerto Rico will never be a state. We are going towards independence, regardless of these sellout Boricuas in Congress, in Hollywood, and in journalism. Jasmine, the thing here, um, the point when, uh, when um, Rosa said, this is the moment to get loud, that's the, that's the issue here. The fact that Afro-Latinos are expressing their view, and they should. And they have the right to because they know their experience better than anybody. Yeah, I mean, the the fact of the matter is, is that what as as we're we're looking at what happened and and you know, there, uh, Rita Morena, Moreno and other people are saying things like, essentially the subtext of what they're saying is you should just be happy with what you got. Right. Um, what that is, it, it reminds me of a concept called interest convergence by Derek Bell. And, and what that is, is that uh, when those in power uh, when essentially the majority white folks, when those in power um, lend out, you know, a hand to advance equity for people of color, but they only do it in within the circumstances so that the benefits for white folks outweigh the benefits for people of color. And this is a good example of that, um, a very good example of what can be perceived as a small progress, as a celebration, um, but but what it really what it really is um, is a, a manipulation tactic, and um, it's a fallacy of uh, of Latino representation of in the Heights specifically. If you go take a walk around the Heights today, I guarantee you, you will see Afro Latino people walking around. Um, Dominicans uh, are the Latino subgroup that has the most prevalent um, identification of Afro-Latino. That identity resonates with that particular subgroup the most. So 
for for them to misrepresent that subgroup in particular in this way um, is 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 really baffling. Well, I, I'll say this here. Um, it is, uh, I, I'm still laughing at Bill Maher saying how he knows Washington Heights so well because his dad parked his car there on his way to Manhattan. Ooh, that's how you know the, the neighborhood so well, huh? Got it. Well, From 60 years ago. Huh? From 60 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, when Washington Heights was white. <laughs> you know, of course, you know, that's your, if he's 65, that means even longer. Yeah, his experience, all of everybody's experiences growing up in the five boroughs in, in, in New York City were experiences of complete ethnic stratification. You know, Washington Heights is now known as the Little Dominican Republic. It's even small cultural things. And one of my friends was like, at the end, we all have different cultures that should be celebrated. Like, when the movie opens and he's selling piraguas, piraguas is a very Puerto Rican term for shaved ice. Dominicans use a different term for even shaved ice. It's like those nuances are really important, but what's also important for people to understand and, and grapple with blackness and how we talk about it in the United States, very rarely do we talk it about, about blackness outside of the binary of African-American and European-American mm -hmm. as opposed to the black diasporic world where it shows his heart the most. The Bronx, Washington Heights, even to this day, Brooklyn, and the five boroughs is where you'll find every, quote, Latino community somehow represented, but you're also seeing a growing Garifina community that is Black, a growing Black Belizean community, a growing Black Cuban community, the continual growth of a Black Puerto Rican community, the continual growth of a Black Dominican um, community. And that's, that's, it's not baffling because once we can align ourselves in solidarity with other brothers and sisters and non-binary folks on the issues that impact all of us around material resources, what they're afraid is that we're solidifying our ranks and that blackness is now inclusive, where whiteness is always exclusive. Excellent point there. Jasmine, your final comment. Yeah, I just want to add on to that and say that was something that's not getting a lot of shine in the media is that there was an important uh, piece that was in the play that was left out of the movie. And and that was a scene where, um, where the father expressed some anti-Black sentiments towards Benny and him dating Nina. Um, and that that is um, not, you know, that's, that's not a coincidence. Um, it, it has to do with the same issue of a lack of dark-skinned Afro-Latinos in leading roles. Um, and that would have been a, a perfect opportunity to showcase the realities of what it is like for a lot of African-descendant Latinas dating uh, monoracial Black men and the, the pushback that they get from their families. Um, and that's an important piece that hasn't been talked about a lot that has been left out of the, the conversation. All right, then. Rosa Clemente, Jasmine Haywood, we really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, folks. Got to go to a break. We'll be back on Roland Martin Unfiltered. I believe that people our age have lost the ability to focus the, the discipline on the art of organizing. The challenges, there's so many of them and they're complex. And we need to be moving to address them. But I'm able to say, watch out, Tiffany. I know this road. That is so freaking dope. <laughs> <laughs>
Racial injustice is a scourge on this nation, and the black community has felt it for generations. We have an obligation to do something about it. Whether it's canceling student debt, increasing the minimum wage, or investing in black-owned businesses, the black community deserves so much better. I'm Nina Turner, and I'm running for Congress to do something about it. 60 years ago, the Freedom Riders rode buses to fight against segregation. They won. And now, as voter suppression is sweeping the country, we're riding out again. Join the blackest bus in America and hundreds of organizations on a week-long Freedom Ride for voting rights from June 18th to June 26th. Come out to our rallies in New Orleans, Jackson, Birmingham, Nashville, Atlanta, Columbia, Raleigh, Charleston, Richmond, and Washington, D.C. If you can't join us in the event on the route, you can just meet us in D.C. on June 26th. Or if you can't ride at all, then show your solidarity by hosting a rally right in your own town on June 26th. No matter where you are, everybody can be a Freedom Rider. To learn how to get involved, text Freedom Ride to 797979. We got power, y'all, and we're bringing it to D.C. Yes, there is. There is. Good to see everybody together, you know, yeah. Now, when you stood on that stage, and you this is not even a Superdome, when you saw all those folks grooving, how does it actually make you feel? It inspires me, you know what I mean? As long as I can make a move, it's like Peter Piper, you know what I mean? You got to keep on stepping your game up until you see everybody swaying. But then when you see multiple, multiple generations, though, getting it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Music is music. As long as, it, as long as it moves you from a child to an adult, you know what I mean? It's going to move you, if it's good. <laughs> well, man, it's good seeing you still doing your thing. Thank you, family. Good to see you, too, from the cruise and all that. Absolutely. You know? Folks, be sure to watch the 2021 Essence Festival of Culture live, live, uh, live loud virtual experience on EssenceStudios.com, also Essence.com, uh, taking place uh, this Friday through Sunday, plus July 2nd through the 4th. Uh, next Monday, we'll have a recap of the first weekend, and then on July 5th, we'll have another recap for that weekend. We appreciate uh, the partnership with Coca-Cola. Thank you so very much. All right, folks, let's go to the home of uh, Coca-Cola, Georgia, where Governor George Brian Kemp is deciding whether Georgia government agencies are going to close next year for Juneteenth. Guess what? To observe Juneteenth as one of the state's fixed 12 paid holidays, Kemp would have to give up either Confederate Memorial Day on April 26th or Robert E. Lee's birthday on January 19th. He will announce his decision in the next few weeks. Ooh, that's going to be a good campaign uh, one right there, Michael. Mike, we can't hear you. 
I can't wait to see how he reaches his decision and who he talks to about his decision. Um, I don't know who he's, uh, I imagine some of these state representatives that are going to say, if you don't support Robert E. Lee or the Confederate Day, we're going to you know, pull our support. Um, and you, how dare you even consider Juneteenth uh, as a holiday? So I'll be curious. I mean, I think I know what Brian Kemp's going to do. He's going to, he's not going to do the right thing. Uh, and, it's, and it's unfortunate, but that's, uh, you know, again, as we've talked about on several occasions, those kind of issues come to the ballot box. If you are, if you're not happy uh, with those decisions that your elected leaders are making, vote them out. Uh, if you sit at home and cry about, you know, that, oh, your vote doesn't count, your vote doesn't matter, even though you saw firsthand that it does in the last election cycle in Georgia, you know you can make a difference. So uh, we'll see what Brian Kemp does, but I, I have no, I'm not holding my breath that he's going to do the right thing. That, that, that's, that's, that's a hell of a, uh, well, you got Confederate Memorials Day, Julian, and Robert E. Lee's birthday. Mm, let's see. Uh, we, so we got to choose between uh, a traitor who had slaves, who didn't want us to be freed, and the Confederates who didn't want us to be freed. And then we got to pick whether we're going to have the holiday where we got freed in Texas. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, first, uh, Julian, can you hear me? All right, y'all, fix her audio. Oh, Congo, your thoughts about that? Yes. Well, I think that I, I agree all, with, with, with Michael, unfortunately. I think Governor yeah. Kemp is going to make the wrong decision and not be on the right side of history. But you know what? This is also a good time for us to not forget that we need to keep the pressure up on the corporations, the Coca-Colas and the like, because we put a lot of pressure on them earlier this year as it relates to not supporting some of the efforts that were being made in Georgia. And now we're spending so much time speaking about some of this legislation that we can't take the eye off the ball of the people who fund these organizations and so uh, who fund the Republican whatever you want to call it, network of, 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 of voter disenfranchisement. So I believe that if we can keep that pressure on, calling out these companies, and as Michael said, reminding people of, of, what, of remembering when these next elections come around, maybe we'll get lucky and... Well, not lucky. Maybe we will force Governor Kemp to make the proper decision, but we have to make sure that all of our efforts, 360, are focused on the corporate pressure as well as the political pressure, and I think we might get a result that, that, that works in our favor. Laughing. I'm just laughing that the choice is Juneteenth, Confederate Memorial Day, or Robert E. Lee's birthday. Oh, I love it. I, I love it going into an election year. I'm sure Stacey Abrams is like. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping at the bit, no doubt. What you gonna do, Brian? What you gonna do? <laughs> you gonna side with freedom or with the people who didn't want us free? I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right, y'all. The Emory School of Medicine formally apologizes to a doctor more than 60 years after denying his application because he was black. As part of his Juneteenth programming, Emory School of Medicine invited Dr. Marion Hood to a virtual event for students, faculty, and staff members. The school's dean handed Dr. Hood a framed letter apologizing for the rejection letter he received in 1959. The 83-year-old doctor told the story about how he didn't allow the school's discriminatory policy to stop him. Dr. Hood went on to study medicine at Loyola University in Chicago, where he said he still faced discrimination. 
After graduating, he became a gynecologist and obstetrician in Atlanta, where he delivered more than 7,000 babies before retiring in 2008. Uh, we, we've seen a lot of these, a lot of these um, uh, taking place here, uh, 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 Michael, where these schools and universities are apologizing for their past and apologizing uh, for, for these type of issues. Um, some will say, hey, too late. But, but frankly, for the person who experienced it, I think it's important. Yeah, it's, you know, um, it's, so, it's so difficult when you're dealing with these kinds of, of issues related to, obviously, education, both secondary education, uh, university uh, learning, postgraduate degrees, and where the fairness comes in. And uh, I'm sure my other panelists will have more to say because he's in academia and will have certainly understand the kind of dynamics uh, between fairness and race and, and, and socioeconomic issues and how do you balance it to make it fair. I, I don't know. I think that's the challenge of, of how we move forward as a country and as a people is try to try to how to make it fair. Uh, and that's a back going back to the NCAA decision from the Supreme Court earlier, is to try to how to figure out how to level the playing field. Omakongo? Well, in actuality, this actually ties back to the conversation you just had regarding the heights, because really what it comes down to is a question of, about representation and doing the right thing. Apologies are nice, but it has to be uh, apology plus something else. We just saw another story over the weekend where a 99-year-old African-American soldier was awarded the Purple Heart after being denied it all of these years. And so the, the recognition is important, but really, at the end of the day, I want to know what is Emory doing, what are other universities doing to make sure that maybe provide some other types of financial assistance for future students who want to be in the medical school. We have to do more to, to correct the record. And, and again, as Michael was saying, it is really important that these people are getting the recognition for what they've done while they're still here, because so many have passed without getting that recognition. But we need more than apologies. It's sort of like with Juneteenth, right? We are, we are happy that we got the holiday. We are happy for that. But as it was said earlier, after the celebration, we need legislation and we need to fight. So Emory did the work in correcting the record, but we need to do more. Are they developing community programs for people in the in, in the in the area who may want to study medicine? Are they connecting Emory with the larger African American community? These types of projects need to show that we can go beyond apologies and actually look towards making real change within the communities. And so we take the apology, glad he got it, but they need to do a lot more. And a lot of organizations across different industries need to be doing the same. I'll say one other thing, Roland Martin. You talked about a couple of weeks ago of how many of these corporations decided to give $50 billion towards diversity initiatives, but only like $250 million went out. People talk a good game, but we got to force them to walk the walk. Uh, absolutely. Let's talk about voting, folks. Criticism from Senate Democrats continues to pour in since Democratic Senator Joe Manchin blocked the passing of the four people. Well, actually, he didn't. He said he's not going to vote for it. It has to come up for a vote, so he hasn't blocked anything. Now Manchin is receiving backlash from GOP senators. Senator Lindsey Graham appeared on Fox News Sunday where he spoke about Manchin's voting compromise. Now, Senator Manchin took out a lot of the, the basic Senate pl yeah. plans, S-1, the For the People Act, like uh, yeah. public financing of congressional elections. Can you go along with the Manchin stripped-down version? And if not, why not? 
Well, one, I like Joe Manchin a lot, but we had the largest turnout in the history of the United States, and states are in charge of voting in America, so I don't like the idea of taking the power to redistrict away from state legislators. You're having people move from red, uh, blue states to red states. Under this proposal, you'd have some kind of commission uh, redraw the new districts, and I don't like that. I want states where people are moving to have control over how to allocate new congressional seats. So as much as I like Joe Man Manchin, the answer would be no. In my view, SR1 is the biggest power grab in the history of the country. It mandates ballot harvesting, no voter ID. It does away with the states being able to redistrict when you have population shifts. Uh, it, it's just a bad idea, and it's a problem that most Republicans are not going to sign up. They're trying to fix a problem most Republicans have a different view of. Now, folks, the Senate is scheduled for a test vote of the Florida People Act tomorrow. Uh, Senator Chuck Schumer actually uh, took the floor where he, at, where he talked about uh, this, this very issue. I'm going to pull that video up. Uh, it, it, for, you, you can already see, first of all, it was a whole bunch of lying going on right there uh, with Lindsey Graham. Just, just straight lying. You know I me. Mean? Come on now, Lindsey. Stop fronting. All right. Uh, here is Senator Chuck Schumer uh, today on the floor of the United States Senate. Republican colleagues to listen to some of the policies that have been proposed by Republican state legislatures and tell me how they're about election integrity, how, about, how they're about suppressing fraud, reducing polling hours in polling places. How is that about election integrity? How does that reduce voter fraud? Mandating that every precinct, no matter how large or small, have the same number of ballot drop boxes, a county of a million and a county of a thousand, the same number. How does that reduce fraud? Don't give them water. Don't allow them to have a drink as they're waiting in the hot sun on lines to vote. Yeah, what does that have to do with voter fraud? It has to do with cruelty. It has to do with nastiness. And it has to do with suppressing the vote. Allowing a judge to overturn an election. Allowing a partisan state election board to replace a duly elected county elections board member if they're underperforming. What does that have to do with fraud? What does that have to do with fraud? Removing student IDs from the list of valid forms of identification. That's election integrity? Bunk. We know what you're doing. You don't want students to vote. Yeah. Don't have students vote. Turn them off to the whole process and make America even more alienated. Delaying the hours of Sunday voting until the evening, which coincidentally, or not so coincidentally by these Republican legislatures, makes it harder for black churchgoers to participate in voter drives after Sunday services. How despicable. Does that sound like Jim Crow, my Republican colleagues? It sure does to a lot of us. I challenge my Republican colleagues. I challenge you, Republican senators. Come to the floor. Defend these policies. Tell us how they secure the vote. We know what you're up to. America knows what you're up to. And not to debate this? Are you afraid to debate it? Do you not have any good arguments? Let's dispense with this nonsense. There is no real principle behind these policies. They're not about election integrity. They're not about voter fraud. These policies have one purpose and one purpose only, making it harder for younger, poorer, 
non-white and typically Democratic voters to access the ballot. Well, now, uh, Michael, um, what do you think uh, Schumer is doing by saying he's going to call it for a vote June 22nd? Um, forcing folks to get on the record? Forcing Manchin to be on the record? Absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, you know, clearly what he's doing. I certainly liked his, uh, his speech. I think that's what uh, some of us have been uh, hoping for from a lot of our leaders uh, in Congress to stand up and not always try to figure out <clears throat> kind of the middle of the road or how can I make everybody happy. And he called them out. He said, this is Jim Crow. Uh, and it's nice to hear a white politician uh, say those things. And it's important uh, that he puts it on the record. But yes, absolutely. It's time for Joe Manchin um, to have to show his cards. You know, he's played this game for the last several months of, oh, I want non-bipartisanship. Oh, we got to figure out a better way of moving forward. Okay, now let's see where you are. And uh, when you put the when he puts the rule up, uh, and then obviously then the vote. So we'll see what happens. But I'm glad uh, Senator Schumer is finally saying enough is enough. Uh, you've had your time in the sun. So let's now see where you really are. McCongo? Uh, absolutely. Look, and first of all, with Senator Graham, I, every time I hear these Republicans talk about state rights, I keep saying, wow, weren't you the guys who were talking about going into other states to help them overturn the election? Lindsey Graham was talking about going in, in, into Georgia to see what was going on there. The hypocrisy is amazing. And then just the lies as it relates to things like voter ID. Look, Democrats are not against voter ID laws. They're, 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 they're not against voter ID. They're against restrictive voter ID. If you can vote with a hunter's license as your ID, you should be able to vote with a student license as your ID. Those are the types of things that we're calling for, being able to use utility bills and, and the like that people do in other areas. And so it, it, it's, it's ridiculous in terms of the hypocrisy. I am absolutely thrilled that, that Senator Schumer is going to be bringing this up. Joe Manchin needs to be put on the spot and everybody needs to be on record. Look, when it comes to this type of, of nonsense, when it comes to voting rights, this is why we need to work towards ending the filibuster because the Republicans are going to talk a good game all throughout, but they are going to stay the party of no. And Senator Schumer to get up there and call it Jim Crow and say, what are you all afraid to debate while they just get up there and lie and spin the truth? This is put up or shut up time. So I'm with it 100%. Well, and this is sort of why this just went out from uh, Mark Elias, uh, a voting rights lawyer. This tweet breaking Arizona Senate Bill 1241 passes state house over vociferous dim opposition, pointing out that the bill promotes voter intimidation, violates ballot secrecy and security, and will be costly and unnecessary. Uh, and he, uh, and of course, uh, he then responded, if this is enacted, Arizona will be sued. That's what you're seeing happen all right now. Uh, that, 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 look, that they got no choice to fight in the courts. When you start talking about a fight in the courts, you're still coming against those conservative judges, Michael. Right, exactly. And we'll, again, some of these courts will also um, be on the, uh, under the light to see where they come in, come in on this. Obviously, we have a history of laws related to, uh, to Jim Crow laws and intimidation laws and uh, voter suppression laws. And so now we'll see where they are. Now, we obviously, we were applauding uh, Justice Kavanaugh a little while ago about his decision on the NCAA uh, ruling. And now we'll see how he comes in on this one, because all these are going to eventually go to the Supreme Court, because obviously it's states' rights and state versus state or state versus the federal government. Hence, why I know there are a lot of different issues where a lot of folks would like to see the filibuster blown up for particular issues. But if voting rights isn't one of them, there's no real legitimate list. 
uh, <clears throat> you know, there can be an argument on whether you should blow it up for infrastructure, an argument whether you should blow it up for immigration, an argument whether you should blow it up. Uh, as you know, I'm a big proponent of D.C. statehood, uh, but there's no larger issue uh, than voting rights. And to see what these states are doing, if you don't blow up the filibuster for this, um, then there's really no need. Because you better believe if the tables were turned, yep. you know <laughs> Mitch McConnell would blow up the filibuster in half a second. So I don't know why we always, again, play this nice, oh, let's come together role when we're up against people that don't play the same rules. Right. Simple as that. Got to ask y'all this here. Um, Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, um, liberal, Democrat, uh, having to answer some questions about him, his wife, and his family being longtime members of a private all-white beach club. He, this is how he was asked and how he responded. Okay. A little close. Okay. Back in 2017, you had expressed concerns about the membership of the all-white Bailey's Beach Club, said that you hoped it would become more diverse. Now, your family's been members. Your wife is one of the largest shareholders. Has there been any traction in that? Are there any minority members of the club now? I think the people who are running the place are still working on that, and I'm sorry it hasn't happened yet. Um, do you have concerns in 2021? I mean, obviously, it's been four years. You had remarks on the floor following the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd saying, you know, hoping to root out systemic racism in the country. Um, your thoughts on an elite, all-white, wealthy club, again, in this day and age, um, you know, should these clubs continue to exist? It's a long tradition in Rhode Island, and there are many of them. Uh, I think we just need to work our way through the issues. Thank you. The car's here. Um, Michael, I'm trying to understand. How hard is hell no, no, hell no? Yeah, that was a little disappointing. I like uh, Senator Whitehead. It was just disappointing. Wrong side, wrong side of history, wrong answer, just terrible. Just, I mean, you know which clubs you belong to, and maybe you think <laughs> when you're in public life, hey, I need to disassociate myself with this club for the time being family. Sorry, family, we can't be a member of this club uh, for now. And yeah, if you decide to go after you left the Senate, fine, and then then go back, uh, even though that would be wrong. But to just, it's just, it's too bad. that, that You could have put Republican next to his name and that would have been less surprising. Disappointing. Uh, I'm sorry to see that happen. Well, look, I'm sorry. This ain't that damn hard on the Congo. First of all, you heard, the, you heard the reporter say this came up in 2017. Dude, it's four damn years. They're working their way through these issues? No. What you should have said, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, is real simple. End this now or we will resign. I guarantee Absolutely. you, Omicongo, if the U.S. Senator from Rhode Island had said to these white folks, end this now or we are walking, they probably would have changed it. And they told him, no, he should have said, good riddance. Absolutely. And to sit there and say, yeah, I'm sorry, this is still the case, acting as if he can't do anything about it. You are a United States senator. And then he's used something towards the end of the conversation about it being a, a tradition. This is like, oh, I wish for the good old days or how it used to be. Again, as Michael was saying, these are like Republican talking points. And his wife being one of the largest shareholders, no, no, no. If we're going to put pressure on corporations and other people to, to support voting rights and the like, we need to put pressure on him. We need to put pressure on, on that club to, to, to change this. This is ridiculous. And really, at the end of the day, 
I believe that there are probably some other Democratic senators who are just like that, and they need to be on blast that they are going to be exposed as well. This is the benefits of what happens when you have good journalism. And quite honestly, Senator Whitehouse, the hypocrisy is amazing. You can't talk. Don't put Breonna Taylor and other people's name in your mouth if you're still going to be part of organizations like that. He can't be throwing his hands up. He needs to make an actual change. Like you said, it's been four years. There better not be a fifth one. And hell, I, I, look, uh, I guess who's from Rhode Island? Jeffrey Osborne's from Rhode Island. Y'all need some black people? Uh, Claudia Jordan. Really? I think she's from Rhode Island as well. There's some black people in Rhode Island. I mean, I play in Jeffrey's golf tournament every year. I see a lot of them. Y'all, th th this is the BS here. And I don't give a damn if you're a Democrat. And the deal is, I'm not going to say, oh, well, no. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, that was a trash-ass answer. And what he should be saying is, to the club, change this policy now or me and my family will resign, and if his wife is a shareholder, he should announce she is going to be shelling, selling her shares in this... If they don't change it, she will be selling her shares and donating it to a black cause. That's what he should be saying. That's, That's how leaders lead. Correct. Simple as that. Absolutely. Y'all gotta go to a break. We come back. Our Where's Our Money segment... Coca-Cola makes a big decision and big announcement regarding the support of black and minority-owned ad, uh, uh, advertising outlets. I'm going to explain when we come back on Roland Martin Unfiltered. George Floyd's death hopefully put another nail in the coffin of racism. You talk about awakening America, it led to a historic summer of, of protest. I hope our Younger generation, don't ever forget that nonviolence is soul force. Right, the... Hello, I'm Nina Turner. My grandmother used to say, all you need in life are three bones. The wishbone to keep you dreaming, the jawbone to help you speak truth to power, and the backbone to keep you standing through it all. I'm running for Congress because you deserve a leader who will stand up fearlessly on your behalf. Together, we will deliver Medicare for all. Good jobs that pay a living wage and bold justice reform. I'm Nina Turner, and I approve this message. Hey, y'all. Join the Blackest Bus in America and hundreds of organizations on a freedom ride for voting rights. From June 18th to June 26th, Join our caravan for rallies in cities and states from Louisiana to Virginia. And on June 26th, you can join us in Washington, D.C. or host a voting rights event in your own city. To learn how to get involved, text Freedom Ride to 797979. It's, it's 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 so important that you talk about social justice. We're just talking about us as people, the ones that are lost, the ones that get caught up into stuff that makes no sense. But it's a lot of love out here, and it's like that's what today is about showing that coming out today is a day of peace. So I feel like we're gonna get our get our get our peace today. Yeah, you know what? I I, I have uh, a great team in Louisville. 
Uh, we do a program called Let the Kids Grow with Christopher 2X and to be able to be to reach so many different places. You know, it's love because we're losing too many kids to senseless violence. I'm working on my new movie, uh, the biopic, the masterpiece, King of the South. Folks, don't forget uh, Essence Festival of Culture. Uh, live loud virtual experience on EssenceStudios.com and Essence.com. Friday through Sunday. This Friday through Sunday. And, of course, uh, we will have a recap uh, on Monday. And then, of course, uh, again, July 2nd through the 4th with a recap on July 5th. been frozen out. Facing an extinction level event. We don't fight this fight right now. You're not going to have black on you. All right, folks, as you know, we have been um, fighting this issue of black economic empowerment with these ad agencies and major corporations uh, for a very long time. In the last few months, Byron Allen, Todd Brown, myself, uh, Butch Graves with Black Enterprise, also uh, Ice Cube, Diddy, also, um, of course, so many others, so many others. Junior Bridgman, uh, Don Jackson, you know, we've been, um, you know, issuing a clarion call, say, support Black-owned media. Well, today, Coca-Cola made this announcement that they plan to double its ad spend on minority-owned media. Now, uh, this is what the story from Ad Age says. Uh, Coca-Cola North America announced it will nearly double its media spend with minority-owned companies over the next three years, pledging that no less than 8% of its yearly ad budget will be directed to Black, Hispanic, and Asian-American-owned platforms and their partners by 2024. It says the story company already increased its minority-owned media spend this year more than five-fold compared to 2020. Uh, and then it says that Coca-Cola is also working to foster new relationships. Uh, and it says with partners like Ebony Jet Revolt and My Cultura, uh, as well as uh, partners like Essence Univision. Well, first of all, I can here's a quote. Following a thorough analysis of our marketing spend, we recognize we could do more to support an equitable media landscape by creating growth opportunities for minority-owned and led outlets, says Melanie Bolden, chief marketing officer of Coca-Cola North America. Now, y'all been watching this show, you see that uh, beginning last Monday, we started our partnership with Coca-Cola, sponsoring these Essence Throwback Moments. In addition to that, uh, you've, if you actually uh, go to uh, our social media account, what you will also see is how we have been posting uh, Essence Throwback uh, photos on our Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, uh, pages as well. All of that, folks, uh, is a part of this. Now, why is this important? Why is this important? Uh, because, like you'll see right here, so if you go to my, uh, uh, so you see here, this is a photo of Remy Ma uh, and um, uh, Queen Latifah. Then, of course, you see this is a photo we had of, of, of Lester Holt uh, when he was there. So we've been posting other photos as well here with Tashina Arnold. But here's a piece, because what we have been making clear is that the money going to black-owned media. Now, that says no less than 8%. We still want to know what specifically is the black-owned media spend. Michael, here's what we're now seeing. We're now seeing companies like Coca-Cola. McDonald's came out with their announcement. General Motors came out with their announcement. 20 companies under Group M 
uh, but Group M has more than a hundred brands. So there are more there are more companies with Group M that have not accepted uh, their two percent pledge with Black Owned Media, and so we're gonna we're gonna keep putting pressure on them. And for all these people, Michael, who say, "Oh man, you shouldn't be calling folks out," no. The bottom line is, if this didn't happen, if Byron didn't drop his lawsuit, if we didn't sign that letter to, uh, that ran on the front page for General Motors. If these things did not happen, uh, you would not be seeing this reaction from corporate America. I I've had the same thing. I've had people uh, telling me, well, man, you know what? You know, you keep calling out, you know, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi because, you know, she won't do these interviews uh, with black-owned media. You'll see right here, this is one of the... Uh, this is one of the tweets that I sent out today. Uh, we've been using this. Uh, we, 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 we've been using this. Where's Nancy uh, uh, graphic? Uh, we've been posting on Instagram, uh, Facebook, and all of our pages. Uh, we're going to show y'all in a second, uh, so you see it right here. But and this is why it's the call out. Okay, we've been waiting for eleven damn months to get an interview with Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Okay, so the same thing, calling out these companies and these ad agencies. Look. If we haven't gotten money before, we ain't going to get money tomorrow. And so I'm glad to see the Coca-Cola announcement. I want to see more companies. And what's happening is we're establishing a floor now, Michael. It's a floor. Not that 0.5%, not that 1%. It's a floor. We're also forcing these companies to look at their metrics, how they're measuring, because that's how they also uh, uh, try, to, uh, try to knock us out. What's your metrics? What are your numbers? And it's like, you trying to compare us to them? When a company like Quibi, Y'all remember Quibi? Jeffrey Katzenberg, Meg Whitman? Remember that little app they announced last year? They lasted seven months. They booked $150 million in revenue. And y'all, before they even launched, and they didn't have a single damn metric, Michael. And they booked $150 million in revenue. That shows you the games being played in advertising. And so we welcome the Coca-Cola announcement. We welcome the others. We want to see more companies step up. The $300 billion being spent every year on advertising, Michael. And you clearly know uh, this space better than, uh, than I do, and I, I'm not sure. But I have two levels of, of skepticism. One, uh, I'm glad that there certainly, um, as you do anything, is uh, more than what it was. So that's a good thing. Um, but two levels of skepticism. First, that 8%. Does that mean if it's split up with those two different, those four different groups, does that mean it's two percent per group? Um, so obviously it's still more two percent more than it was yesterday, but is that still enough? And you, well, it's three groups: Black, Hispanic, and Asian-owned. And we, so we don't know. We don't, that's the total percentage is eight percent. We don't know what specifically the black-owned spin. We've been asking companies to have a black-owned spin of at least 5%. Byron Allen's initial letters went out asking for 2% because it was one. He said going to two doubles it. But we then said to Byron, no, hell no, it should be a minimum of 5%. Uh, and some companies have been saying, oh, well, like for instance, General Motors announced, you know, we, we, we're going to get to 8% by 2025. I kept saying, why you got to wait? And that's the whole piece there. Uh, but, but, but the floor is being established, but we still want to know what's the black-owned spin. Go ahead. Got it, which was what, hence my skepticism. My second... Um, skepticism is I'm wondering if Coca-Cola, who has done great things in this country relative to whether it's, as you've been advertising, the Essence uh, Music Festival, <clears throat> whether it's the United Negro College Fund, 
Uh, Coca-Cola was a strong supporter of the Ron Brown Foundation. So I have, I have no, Coca-Cola has done great things. But I wonder if strategically they're saying maybe we need to do something with black and of color media now because this voting rights thing is going to get hot and folks are going to start asking us to move our headquarters out of Georgia. And maybe if we do this, maybe some of those voices will say, well, wait a minute, and we'll have some friends in the media. No, that's not, that's not what was happening. I mean, I, I, I can tell you uh, there was a review before we dropped our General Motors letter, and then we dropped that particular letter. Uh, we were pushing, other, we were pushing uh, numerous companies. This had been building. This had been building, and, and, and we've been saying things privately. Uh, but then, of course, we went public. Uh, that was the case. The, the thing here on Congo that I need people to understand, and, and everything that Michael just said about the support uh, of Coca-Cola and these other companies for these charitable deals, that's, that's fine. But that's charity. We're talking investment. Aid and investment are two different things. And that's the issue that we have been raising, okay? If a company gives a million dollars for an effort, but no, we want to know what about, the, what about $100, $200 million. So here's the deal. If you look at the numbers, okay, just take 8%. Coca-Cola's spending, y'all, three, if they're spending $3 billion, uh, let's say in advertising, now all of a sudden you're talking about now spending upwards of 300, nearly $300 million um, with, uh, with minority agencies. Uh, and so, again, that's, that's what we're talking about. We're saying, and we're also saying broaden it. Don't just support, and that's why I think that announcement is important. And again, I can tell y'all, and here's the Coca-Cola, y'all see, y'all see that. The key is don't just buy Urban One. Don't just buy Radio One. Don't buy just TV One. Don't just buy Essence, okay? Don't just buy the usual suspect. And we're saying don't sit and try to include BET. They're not black-owned, yep. okay? Viacom, CBS. Yep. And so that's why we've been specific with our ass on Macongo because, and then we want to say track it. We're saying to the companies, hey, we want to see the check. Hey, I've had conversations with Walmart, Verizon, General Motors. Roll ain't seen a check. <laughs> I've seen the Coca-Cola check. Why are we saying that? Because a lot of companies have make announcements. They make announcements to look great, like all those companies who announced uh, they were giving in the wake of George Floyd. $50 billion! Yeah. And most of it has not been spent more than a year later. That's also what we're challenging. Uh, absolutely. And, and I really got to give you you and all of the other people that you mentioned your, your props, because one of the things I've always heard you say on these interviews and use the BET Viacom as an example, they'll give all of these this money for companies and organizations that target black people, but not are run by black people. And so this is happening as a direct result of the efforts that you and, and so many others that you mentioned have put in. And we, we have to make sure that we're keeping that pressure on because you talked about Quibi and the no metrics versus what we have to provide to be able to get these funds. It's extremely important. We also have to make sure that the organizations that they do sponsor really do have a, a large you know, majority black ownership, right? Because we know when we go back to those affirmative action policy days that some of these companies will get like one black representative and say, ooh, look here, we got it. Now give us that paper. And they, I think they know we're smarter than that now. And this actually ties into our first conversation tonight about the NCAA, right? People understanding black power, people understanding what we do and what we can do economically, and that, that needs to be rewarded. And it's becoming from the efforts that you all have put in. So this is good. Like you said, this is a floor, and we need to keep that pressure up.
And, and, and look, it's about we are black folks who drop money. We invest money. We sit here and we spend money. That's what we do. It's called return on investment. And so, and, and I love these people, folks who say, well, man, uh, you calling folks out uh, uh, so you can get paid. Yeah. <laughs> and guess what? It also means so I can hire more people. That's right. That's what it means. I can hire more producers, more digital editors. I can have more shows. We can hire, we can travel more. We can do those. That's, yeah. Because you know what? I don't see none of these folks bitching about Fox News with a billion and a half dollar profit. CNN getting a billion dollar profit. Y'all, I ain't say revenue. Profit. I, I, had some, I even had some black people, Michael, I had some fools on, on Twitter saying, uh, uh, Roland, uh, why are you running these Nina Turner ads? Because she paid for them. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm trying to understand why does ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, MSNBC, CNN, why all of them get to run ads? But I can't. Why, why is it that they get to get paid, but I can't. And then they were like, well, the woman who's running against Nina, will you run her ads? If she pay for them. <laughs> this ain't hard. CNN runs Democrat ads, Republican ads. Would I, would I run Republican ads? Yeah. Check clear. Y'all, this is a media company. Our job is to run it like a company. This ain't charity. This is not a foundation. So don't come to me with your charity dollars. Come to me with six and seven figures. That's how we're able to grow, Michael. This is business. And the same thing goes for the Democratic Party, the Democratic Governors Association, and the DSCC, and the DCCC. Y'all gonna be one folks vote next year? I'm expecting, let me put it on the table right now, Michael. From the DSCC, I'm expecting money from Ohio, North Carolina, Florida, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin. Yeah, that's what I'm expecting. You damn right I am. Well, just like I'm sure the, you know, the Lincoln Project ran a lot of ads on your platform. Nah, we were running the Lincoln Project going to cut a check. I'm sorry, what'd you say? They're going to have to cut a check. Oh, oh, I thought those, oh, so those were not paid ads? No, I was, we, were, we were talking about those, but uh, they're going to have to be cutting a check, too. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, some of these people that are on Twitter that, you know, always have something to say to you, they're all the same people. Um, and then, you know, just for whatever reason, have a uh, have an issue with your show and your success. And, you know, that in my book is called hating. So, you know, you know, obviously the haters will hate. Um, but you're exactly right. Um, darn right. You're calling people out. And that's what you're in business for. Um, so I don't uh, I don't take any uh, umbrage for what you what you say. Well, here's the deal. I, we don't want to have to call people out. We don't look. I didn't want to have to sit here and call out Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her staff. Mm -hmm. But when your ass can't find 20 minutes, 10 minutes, 5 minutes, and almost a whole year, yeah, we got a problem. And I don't know, I don't know 
of an NMPA interview she's done. I don't know an interview she's done with April Ryan. I don't know the interview she's done with other black radio. So what that tells me is, if y'all ain't talking to no black people, we got a problem. And see, that's the thing here. Look, if I'm getting nothing today, and I got nothing last week, what says I'm going to get something next week? No. We got to call folks out. I need, if people need to watch it on McCongo, have to understand the, the principles of business. Black that's people right. have is, been shut is, out of the process for decades and centuries. King wrote his book, Why We Can't Wait. Y'all, and I said this, I'm 52. I'll be 53 in November. I ain't trying to wait five years, four years, three years. I'm trying to get paid right now because we got to break this cabal because there's a, there's a 15, 18, 20-year-old brother or sister out there who wants to do this in the future, and they should not be fighting for 1 and 2 percent in 10, 20, 30 years. Final comment. Go ahead. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And when you talk about Speaker Pelosi and they're like, if you're going to be up there and, and, and celebrate people like John Lewis and, and, and wear the Kente cloth and all of these other things. Sing a little bit voice and sing. Yeah, right, right. You know, and happy Kwanzaa this and all of that. You got to support the platforms that, that he supported and the like. And so we, we have to fight for this. This day of the happy to be here. Look, all of these other networks, you know, Ted Turner built the network, built an empire. This is where it starts. We can't just keep focusing on what the end product looks like. We got to be part of this from the ground up. And like you said, don't want to wait five years. Shoot, we don't want to wait five months. And look, we got other people coming up, journalism students, other people who want to build these empires. And we have to do the work now for a better tomorrow. It worked for other groups who do it. Why not for us? Forget this happy to be here, just happy to be on, on a network. Build our own. We come from a history of people who've done that, and we have to do this in this so important media space, this global media market. We have to do that. We have no choice. Hey, all y'all companies making announcements, I need to see checks being written, direct deposits made. That's how I will judge you. I said to General Motors... I will praise y'all when I see checks written. I can praise Coca-Cola because I've seen the check written. The rest of y'all I met with, I ain't seen the check yet. That's why I got to keep asking folks to give to our show. I shouldn't be, I should not. Y'all don't see Fox News asking folks to donate because you know why? They get subscription fees. They get advertising fees. Nah, that day is over. So, great announcement about Coca-Cola. I want to see more companies stepping up as well. Are y'all time fit live win? All right, y'all. So, um, so I, I want to show y'all something right here. Uh, this is too funny. Uh, so, you know, Anthony Anderson, he been working out. Uh, they all part of the uh, they all part of the uh, Will Smith uh, Big Willie challenge, and so what happened was uh, Anthony dropped his video, uh, and he was trying to sit here uh, and, uh, and talk about me because I was joking with him uh, about about the video uh, and all of this. So, so so watch this, just watch this, y'all. After five days, I'm back. 
Let's get it in. All right, so so Anthony did that video, and I'm trying to see. He did another one. I'm trying to see. He did another video, and we were uh, and we were cracking. He tried to sit here uh, and, and call me out because when he did the first video, uh, dropping all this water, I said, "Man, stop fronting. You know, doggone well, uh, you sat here and just ran some just ran some water uh, down. Is this it right here? Go to it." Not giving y'all sweat today. Just letting you know I'm in here getting it in. Get your All right, that ain't it. Here, I think this is the one here. Go to it. All right, let's see. All right, almost. I think this is the one where he was like, uh, I don't know what happened to the audio. But anyway, Anthony was like, yeah, roller bar. I ain't pour a bottle down my chest. And so Jim Jones uh, saw that, and I said, and people jump on your timeline, man, you ain't sweating. Is that an actual indication that you're working out? Well, Jim Jones is right now. Jim, glad to have you. So, Jim, expl explain that, because, again, a, a, a lot of people, like, man, you putting the work in. Why you ain't sweating? Why you ain't sweating? Well, first of all, you know the hell how cold the damn room is, whatever. So talk right. about sweat and working out. Let, let me tell you this, Roland. Anthony Anderson, he hopped in the pool right before he shot that video. That's what he didn't show. He took a little dip, then he did that. So if you're sweating, that doesn't mean you're losing weight. I'm gonna give you three reasons today why sweating does not mean losing weight. First off, it's water weight, Roland. You're sweating. So people will go in a sauna, they'll have a good workout, say, man, I dropped three pounds. But yes, when you replenish your fluids, those three pounds come right back, which what people don't know. Another thing is sweating is like your body's form of an air conditioner. Sweating is to cool your body down. That's all sweat is. It's cooling you off. Don't confuse being cooled off with burning fat. The last thing, Roland, you're losing so many essential minerals and other vitamins that your body needs when you do sweat that you lose. So when you're done, you have to replenish those minerals and those nutrients and those vitamins. And you know what? You drink sports drinks, you take stuff. So what that does, that puts the hydration right back in you. So people don't understand, yes, you lost it. It's water, but you're going to go, you're going to go, what do you have to work out? You drink a bottle of water. You drink a gallon of water. You're right back where you started. All right, so you see this video right here, Anthony in a sweatsuit. Should you work out in a sweatsuit? No, there's there's no need to, right? There's no need to. Um, I think at, at the end of the day, I tell people. Hello? Hey, you're on. Yep. I tell people at the end of the day. Okay. Cut your rest times, right? You don't have to. It's, it's not about what you wear. Don't work out in. People, I see people in the waistbands, the sweatsuits, all these different gimmicks. Just go to the gym and don't play around. Get it in for 45 minutes. That's the best way to lose some weight. All right. So, okay. So, when you see the the items that people wear underneath their body, and and, and again, it's 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 and I, and like I had one before, and you see a lot of boxers doing this. Mm -hmm. Explain the issue because boxers, what they're doing is different than what we're doing. Absolutely, they're Roland. trying to make weight. Exactly, exactly. You nailed it. You nailed it, Roland. Unless you're working out for a fight in Vegas, which most ninety nine percent of people aren't. You don't have to do that. Boxers are trying to get down to their fight weight before the fight, so they have to drop that water. They drop that water, and they don't for that check. It. For that, there we go. They're, but most people are not working out for that check, Roland. Okay, so there's no need for them to be cutting weight like they're a boxer. Ain't no need. 
And people don't understand, boxers, what they do, they hydrate. They, they, they do not replenish with water. They cut that weight, then they get in that ring. Most of the times, people, after you cut that weight in the sauna or after you sweat, you go drink, you go drink a Powerade, a Gatorade, a water. You, you go drink right. something. Questions. Uh, mm -hmm. see a question mm -hmm. here I'm from... I'm ready for it. I have questions. Uh, Michael and then Omakongo, uh, and then we'll end the show. Uh, Michael, your okay. question for Jim Jones first. Thank you. Um, well, hey, Jim Jones, how you doing, fella? What's, what's going on, on brother? The, uh, I understand what you're saying about the whole, that kind of technical kind of sweatsuit, you know, that the astronaut sweatsuit that makes you sweat, obviously. All mm -hmm. right, so take that away for a second. What about people that kind of wear that kind of spandex underneath that, um, I guess, is the same purpose, but it's not that plastic kind of coating they wear? Does that help? Or are you suggesting just wear your most comfortable gear and get it in and don't worry about uh, little tricks? Yeah, wear, wear your most comfortable gear. I tell you what, I've gotten myself down to about 9% body fat and I haven't worn none of that. All I do is go in there with a t-shirt, just work out. If, how about they do this? If you eat right, I'd rather people eat right than wear a waistband or a sweatsuit. Just go in the gym and watch your diet. It doesn't matter what you wear. It, the weight's not going to come off. It's not about what you wear. It's about what you do in the gym. Thank you, Jim. For sure. For sure, brother. Omakongo, go ahead. Yeah, I think that your uh, advice is, is great. And I think that a lot of people could really benefit from, from what you're saying. Um, one of the questions sure. I would have is, what do you suggest that people are doing post-workout to make sure that they're they're keeping the the fat off over time because you talked about how we just go and get the Gatorade and other drinks or and put mm -hmm. it all right back on. What's the goal? What's the advice for consistency outside of the workout to make sure the weight stays off? Yeah, for sure. So the one thing I would say when you're working out, try to stay in a high intensity interval training. That's going to keep you in a more of a fat burning zone. That's the best way to do it. And when you do leave the gym, you can go. You, you can drink. You're, you're supposed to drink your water. What I'm saying is. Let's, let's lose real fat, not the water weight, right? Let's not fall in love with just, oh, I lost four pounds after I hit the sun or after I had all this sweat. That's not, that's a, that's a very, very tricky four pounds. It's not real. It's fake. Let's lose the real weight. Let's watch our diet. Let's tighten up the food and let's work out consistently. And then the weight will stay off. Then you won't, you won't have to worry about going and drinking a smart water. Then the weight's right back again. So yeah, let's just, that, those are what we got to worry about. They keep the true Wait up. It's fool's gold. That sweat is fool's gold. I'm telling you. All right, then. All right, Jim Jones, we still appreciate it. Thanks a lot. For sure, for sure. They can find me G-Y-M-J-O-N-E-Z. All right, then. Uh, let me thank Omakongo, Michael, for joining me on the show. Juliana as well. Folks, if y'all want to support Rollermark Unfiltered, please do so by joining our Bring the Funk fan club. Every, every dollar you give goes to support this show. Cash app, dollar sign, rmunfiltered. Venmo.com forward slash rmunfiltered. PayPal.me forward slash rmartinunfiltered. Zelle, rolling at rollermartin.com. Rolling at rollermartinunfiltered.com. All right, folks. Uh, just... Couple more weeks and we're in the uh, old office space and we go to our new office space. I can't wait uh, to broadcast from there. I'll see you guys tomorrow right here on Roller Mart Unfiltered from Los Angeles, where I'll be attending the Paul Mooney Memorial Service and we'll be live streaming that on Wednesday. I'll see y'all from LA tomorrow. Holla! From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. 
he says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the south side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.